The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number three, Boy Comics. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing the forgotten legacy of one of my favorite comic books of all time, Boy Comics. Published from 1942 through 1956, Boy Comics ran for 117 issues and featured the superhero known as Crime Buster. Along with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, Crime Buster is one of the only superheroes who survived through all the genre changes at the end of the Golden Age, right through to the beginning of the Comics Code Authority and the start of the Silver Age. But while Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are beloved worldwide and have gone on to star in numerous TV shows and movies, Crime Buster has become almost completely forgotten by even the most hardcore comic book fans. Today we're going to take a look at the forgotten history of why Crime Buster was so popular, how he managed to survive for so long, and why he's been almost completely forgotten. One technical note first, this episode was originally recorded as a test run for the podcast. As a result, the audio quality is not quite as good as I've since upgraded the audio system. I have gone through and edited a number of audio issues, some of which require me to re-record segments. So as a result, you may hear some changes in the audio quality at certain points, but all of the major issues have been smoothed out, so I hope you enjoy. In order to tell the story of Crime Buster and Boy Comics, first we have to tell the story of the men who created it, publisher Lev Gleason and writer and artist Charles Biro. Lev Gleason was one of the pioneers of the comic book industry. He began his publishing career in 1931 as an artist and advertising director for a magazine called Open Road for Boys. Soon after that, he went to work at Eastern Color Printing, which published some of the first comic books ever in 1933. Later on, as an editor at the newspaper syndicate United Feature, he got more experience with comic strips and helped launch the early comic book Tip Top Comics. Soon after, he became a business manager for publisher Dan Gilmore. Dan Gilmore had a number of different companies, one of which was called New Friday, which published comic books such as Silver Street Comics and Daredevil Comics. Silver Street Comics and Daredevil Comics were two of the earliest superhero books. And in 1942, Lev Gleason purchased those titles to found his own company. While Silver Street Comics and Daredevil Comics had their fans, both were basically middle-of-the-road titles. But that immediately changed thanks to Lev Gleason's best decision as a publisher, bringing on writer and artist Charles Biro to create his comics. Now, Byro had been working in comics, again, for a while. He was a writer and artist, and at that point, you know, his main claims to fame were he had created the character Airboy, who you may be familiar with, and a character named Steel Sterling. He wasn't a great artist, even by the standards of Golden Age art. He was pretty mediocre, but he really got his claim to fame as an editor and as a writer, first and foremost. When they took over the titles, the first thing they did was they renamed Silver Street Comics into Crime Does Not Pay, 
they changed it from superhero to crime comics. It was the first crime comic. And at the same time they did that, he sort of changed the focus of Daredevil as well, being less sort of like over-the-top superhero action and more gritty crime-based stuff. And they also introduced the title Boy Comics. Now, Boy Comics, like the like those other ones, like Crime Does Not Pay, which picked up the numbering from Silver Street Comics. Boy Comics first started with issue three in 1942. It had previously been a title called Captain Battle Comics, and Captain Battle was a character who was basically like a Captain America ripoff. You know, he wore like a star-spangled T-shirt and had an eye patch, and you know, whatever. He was just one of those run-of-the-mill patriotic heroes trying to capture the same audience as the Shield and Captain America. So with issue three, though, they changed the title to Boy Comics, and Charles Biro, who was drawing the covers and editing and writing the main feature as well as some of the backup stories, had a pretty clear vision for what the book was going to be. The idea was that it was for boys, specifically for boys, and it would feature all boy heroes. All the main characters would be boys, and all the stories would be about boys. Up to that point, most of the comics coming out, they had, you know, sidekicks like Robin or Bucky, but there weren't very many other than, say, Boy Commandos or something that actually focused on the boys as the main character. So with Boy Comics number three, uh, Charles Byro decided to, to change that, and the lead feature in Boy Comics was a character named Crime Buster. And I'll get into some of the other features as well. There were a number of backup features. But Crime Buster is by far the most important character in the series. He's the only one of the characters that was introduced in issue 3 that lasted for the entire run. He starred in all 117 issues of the series and was on the cover for most of those issues and uh, is, is a pretty interesting character in his own right. So Crime Buster appears right on the front cover of Boy Comics number 3 some of the other characters are like, you know, they're in the background or whatever, but the focus is on this new character, Crime Buster. And I like to describe Crime Buster as basically, what if Batman were middle class? His origin story is very similar to Batman, and at that point in 1942, Batman's origin story had already been told. So, in some ways, Byro was not exactly breaking new ground. But he, he grounded his character in a lot more realism than Batman or other superheroes. Crime Buster is a kid named Chuck Chandler. He's a teenager. Exactly how old he is is up for debate, but in the early issues, I consider him to be maybe 14. And he's going to um, a military academy that his, his parents have put him in. His father is like a prominent uh, war activist who is um, a radio personality. And, and his father and his mother are both deeply involved in the war efforts against uh, the Germans and the Japanese. And so, you know, Chuck's off at his school and... He's playing hockey one day when he suddenly overhears uh, some of the other kids on the bench talking that his father, uh, Chuck's father, had just been shot while doing a radio broadcast. So Chuck, wearing his hockey uniform, rushes out. He grabs his cloak. Uh, it's one of those sort of great cloak style military uniform cloaks. Throws that on, rushes to the hospital, and discovers that a German agent, a Nazi agent by the name of Ironjaw, had tried to blackmail his father into giving like a pro-German speech on the radio, and instead his father 
Buster uh, refused and was shot live on the air. And so Crime Buster basically, at that point, he wants revenge, but mostly he wants to protect his mother, who is out somewhere in the Atlantic, like uh, on a rest, like a, I forget exactly, but she's on a boat in the Atlantic for some reason. Either she's coming back from Europe or she's on a first aid ship or something. So Crime Buster goes out to, to find his mother and bring her back safely to the United States. And when he gets out there, uh, unfortunately, a Nazi U-boat sinks the ship and his mother is killed in the attack. So Crime Buster survives and he gets back to the United States and he vows vengeance on Iron Jaw and Nazis and basically all criminals. So we have a classic Batman type origin story where we have a kid who sees his parents killed and uh, decides to dedicate himself to a life of crime. But there are a few key differences, of course. Firstly, he's a little bit older than when Batman sees his parents. You know, I, I think of Batman as being like eight when Bruce Wayne's parents are killed. Crombuster's a little older. He's in early teens, 13, 14. But he also immediately jumps into the crime fighting. So with Batman, you have a guy who's got all the resources in the world, and he's got a foster father figure in the form of Alfred who raises him. And then, you know, in the years since, then they flushed it all out. And he spends his whole life, formative years, going all over the world, training with all these experts to get all these skills and using his incredible fortune to build all these gadgets and this cool secret base and all this stuff so he's got the utility belt and the bat car so when he when he's in the bat plane and all this stuff so when he's ready to fight crime as an adult he's like he's jacked up he's ready to go crime buster's not like that he doesn't have any of those resources his parents aren't rich he's an orphan with no family to speak of and none of his family members ever appear in any issues so apparently he has no extended family either and um, he just has nothing at all to work with other than his willpower and the skills that he has. And what skills he has are basically the skills of a 14-year-old boy who is extremely smart, extremely athletic, has trained at this military academy, he knows how to fight, but he doesn't have any of the other benefits that Batman has. He's just a kid who wants to do some good. And uh, along those lines of being more realistic, his costume is literally exactly what he happens to be wearing when his parents are killed. His costume, his quote-unquote superhero outfit, is just his hockey uniform with his cloak. And as the issues go along, that becomes less of a cloak and more drawn just like it's a cape. But that's it. He's just a kid who's so traumatized that he, you know, won't take his hockey uniform off and... He just runs around fighting bad guys. It's it's a really interesting sort of take on what would happen sort of in real life, if you will, if a character like this actually tried to do something. You know, there's been a lot of stuff recently along those lines, things like Kick-Ass. It's like, oh, well, what would happen if a kid actually tried to fight crime? Well, Crime Buster was that character, you know, 75 years ago. As I mentioned, though, Crime Buster wasn't the only series in the comic. Boy Comics was an anthology originally, like a lot of Golden Age books. And typically, at first, the Crime Buster story stories would be like the first 12, 14 pages of a 64-page comic. And then the rest of the book would be taken up by backup features. Now, some of them didn't last very long. For instance, the early issues had a character named Bombshell, the son of war, who was supposed to be the son of the god Mars, the god of war. And Bombshell basically had come to Earth from Mars because apparently the god Mars lives on Mars. And he had come to Earth to sort of intervene in World War II on the side of the Allies. And he was a kid that wore like a blue chainmail shirt and like a little short pants and a helmet and a sword. And he'd fight Nazis. 
and it seemed kind of cool, I guess, but not cool to audiences at the time because it only lasted like two issues. And that was the case for a lot of the backup stories. There's like another backup feature called uh, case files or secret files that only lasted a few issues. But there were some backup stories of note, features that, that were longer running. Probably the best known of the backup features in Boy Comics, and frankly, none of them are well known at this point, but there was a series called uh, Yankee Long Ago, and Yankee Long Ago was basically a take on Little Nemo and Sumberland, sort of crossed with uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, hence the name Yankee Long Ago. And it was basically about a kid who would fall asleep while reading a history book uh, in each story, and then he would have this adventure where he was sent back in time to whatever time period he had been reading about and have a crazy adventure, and then he would come back to the future just in time to wake up and he was never sure, and the reader was never sure at the end, whether everything he had just done had actually happened or whether it was just a dream. That series is only known really because it was done by a guy named Dick Briefer, who during the Golden Age also did a series called Frankenstein, about Frankenstein's monster, and he had a very idiosyncratic, cartoony style that is popular with fans now, sort of a cult classic, Dick Briefer's Frankenstein. It's been reprinted a few times. So fans of Dick Briefer are kind of familiar with this series. More importantly for people interested in boy comics are two other features. One's called Swoop Storm, which is interesting in part because, uh, as I mentioned, before coming to work for Lev Gleason, Charles Biro had created Airboy. Swoop Storm was kind of his attempt to replicate that. It's about a kid who is um, a genius pilot. Not just a pilot, but he could like build and design airplanes and fly airplanes. And so he and his buddy, he's like 10 years old. He and his buddy would then go off and, you know, fight the Nazis in, in Swoop Storm's souped-up airplane. It's completely ridiculous and has been, I don't want to say made fun of, but that archetype that is sort of classic Byro of the kid aviator hero has been uh, referenced a few times um, as being sort of a golden age concept that's a little silly to modern audiences. You can understand why kids at the time would have been into it, um, but as an example, for instance, there's a character in Alan Moore's Top Ten who is the chief of police now, but during World War II was this kid. He was a teenager who was famous for having a souped-up jet that he had built and been fighting the Nazis. So that was what Swoop Storm was about. He's sort of the prototype, or one of the prototypes along with Airboy, for that type of hero. The other long-running feature is similar in some ways to Crime Buster. It was called Young Robin Hood. And as the name implies, it's about a kid who has a bow and arrow, and he's basically an orphan, uh, as far as I can tell, because he, he like lives in the park, I think it's Central Park, along with some other like homeless kids, uh, and they form their own band of the Merry Men, where there's versions of like Little John and you know it's Will Scarlet and Friar Tuck, but they're all kids, and they have like uh, color-coded hoods and smocks, like they're uh, you know from the 13th century or something, and they fight with bow and arrow, and uh, but they do it. In Central Park and they're basically fighting crooks and, and gun runners and war profiteers. That was the longest running of the backup stories with the exception of the third sort of important backup feature called Lil Dynamite. And Lil Dynamite was sort of an Our Gang type character, similar in a lot of ways to the Bowery Boys or the sort of boy hero stuff that Jack Kirby was doing, where Lil Dynamite is just 
you know, a kid from the Bronx or something who has a bunch of friends and they get in scraps because he's a tough as nails little kid. And he got his nickname Little Dynamite because he could blow a stack at any time. But, you know, he uses his power of uncontrolled anger only for good. That was the last of the backup story to end. Those actually ran for quite a long time along with Young Robin Hood. Little Dynamite and Young Robin Hood lasted into the mid to late 40s and it wasn't until the series um, Boy Comics got up to about issue 36 or 37 before Little Dynamite was finally phased out and the series became all Crime Buster story. Uh, but we'll get to that momentarily as we delve into how the Crime Buster series evolved and changed. There weren't very many superhero books that lasted through the changes of the late 40s and into the early 50s and there are even fewer that actually managed to last through the creation of the comics code. So Crime Buster as a character and Boy Comics as a series was very unique. Other than Batman and Superman and Captain Marvel, it was one of the only series that actually lasted through all the genre changes and all the changes in readership and managed to survive and not just survive but thrive and the way it did it was that Charles Byro was always reacting to the market situation and making changes to the crime buster character and the nature of the strip in order to keep it relevant and up to date for the audiences at the time so we're going to go through the whole series from issue 3 up to 119 and look at the different phases of the character and how they changed and adapted and what why they were changing and adapting and what it meant not just for the character in the series but for comics in general. So Boy Comics number three came out with a cover date of April 1942. And in the Crime Buster strip, Crime Buster was immediately given two key ingredients for any successful superhero comic, namely a supervillain, an archenemy, in the form of Iron Jaw, and a sidekick in the form of Squeaks. Now I've already mentioned Iron Jaw previously, I'll just get into him a little bit because he's kind of a cult favorite among certain Golden Age collectors. Personally, I'm not a big fan for reasons that I'll get into later in uh, this episode, but basically he's a big hulking Nazi uh, agent. He has a metal jaw, and the reason he's so popular with certain collectors is because for supervillains of the time period, he's unusually bloodthirsty. Sure, there's, you know, supervillains who will kill people and whatever, but Iron Jaw is just like viciously evil, and he kills people by biting them to death with his jaw. He's not really a cannibal, but he will eat people alive until they die. And he does this with relish in almost all of his appearances. So because of the grisly nature of the character and the graphic nature of his appearances, there's a subset of collectors that find him to be a particularly interesting uh, character. More interesting to me, uh, and not just me, I think there's I'm developing a cult following through you know my interest in the character, is Crime Buster's sidekick Squeaks the Monkey. Now, just as I mentioned earlier, how Crime Buster is sort of like a scaled-down real-world version of Batman, he has a scaled-down version of Batman's sidekick. Now, since he himself was a boy, it would have been a little bit weird for him to have another boy as his sidekick, although, as I mentioned, Swoop Storm, for instance, does have another boy as his sidekick, so it would have been possible. But instead, since he's already a boy himself, they decided to go down a step and make his sidekick a pet. And the pet is a monkey named Squeaks. He wears a little fez on his head, and in monkey terms, he's extremely intelligent. He can't talk or anything, but he frequently bails out Crime Buster and saves his bacon and often finds clues to when they're on cases that Crime Buster himself hasn't picked up on. When Squeak first appeared in Boy Comics number 3, he was just a nameless monkey. He didn't actually have a name yet, so 
What Byro did was he came up with the brilliant plan to have a contest where kids could name Crime Buster's pet monkey. And the reward for coming up with the best name was an actual live monkey. And sure enough, in issue five, they name him Squeaks and there's an announcement saying that the kid who sent in the name Squeaks was being sent a live monkey. I'm sure that went over really well with that kid's parents when they received a live monkey in the mail. But anyway, so the first couple years of the strip, it was a relatively uh, straightforward superhero book with a couple of, of tweaks. I mean, this is right in the middle of World War II, the height of the popularity of superhero comics. And like most comics, uh, superhero books coming out at the time, the stories were all about the war. So most of the issues he would be... Crime Buster would be fighting against Iron Jaw, who was basically trying to sabotage things on the home front in America, and Crime Buster would stop him. Um, but after a couple years of this, since the book was bi-monthly, it wasn't too long in terms of number of issues, but within a couple years, the end of 1943, beginning of 1944, Byro seems to have gotten kind of tired of this formula. So in issue 15, he took the unusual step of killing off Iron Jaw in a story where basically the Third Reich gets tired of Iron Jaw. They think he's becoming too powerful. So they have another agent called the Rodent who is basically a rat man and they sort of lock them in a room and they fight to the death and kill each other. And this was a little bit problematical for Byro and for the strip simply because while Iron Jaw has been pretty successful in terms of being a villain, uh, an interesting character, Byro had had very little success introducing any other interesting supervillain. The closest he had come was the sort of infamous character He-She in number nine, which was a character that was vertically split right down the middle. One half was male, the other half of the body was female, and the entire issue was basically people only seeing them from one side or the other and mistaking He-She for either a male or a female. Uh, it was totally bizarre, and it sort of shows the level of supervillains that Byro was struggling to come up with. So he seemed to have just gotten tired of the whole thing. Uh, the constraints of doing these, you know, Nazi stories, these supervillain stories, these war stories all the time. So by getting rid of Iron Jaw, it, on the one hand, it uh, sort of freed him to go in a different direction with the book. But on the other hand, it required him to go in a different direction with the book. And uh, he, he pretty soon did. The last time we see like a real supervillain in the book, I think is in issue 17. Uh, there's a character named the Moth who is basically just an arsonist who calls himself the Moth. And after that point, he starts just doing more realistic, grittier um, crime stories. By this point, you know, we're talking early 1944, mid-1944. Crime Does Not Pay was a blockbuster, best-selling comic, had created the whole crime genre and was doing gangbusters for Lev Gleason. So, and... Byro was writing that book as well. He basically started bringing in those elements over to Crime Buster and over into Boy Comics, not just to Crime Buster, but also the other backup strips he was writing, like Little Dynamite and uh, Young Robin Hood. And there's a bit of a transition period after the superhero and supervillain elements are phased out with issue 17 until around issue 30. And during that time, what you see is the stories with Crime Buster get longer and longer more and more complex, grittier, more realistic, and the backup stories get shorter. Some of them start disappearing entirely as Crime Buster Strip is taking up more space, and you really see Byro sort of coming into his own as a writer. 
he's developing issue by issue. And instead of having sort of these plot driven, sort of more formulaic stories, as he gives himself more space to work, he really starts getting into the character work. And we really start to see this take shape around issue 30, 31, where we begin to get almost full length by modern standards stories that get very much into the psychology of the characters, not just the crimes, not just the, you know, the action, but why the criminals are doing it, why the victims are reacting the way they're reacting. Sometimes it's very complicated situations where there's, you know, uh, con men or someone feels betrayed by their family members or by their spouse or their other loved ones. And, um, it, you know, it becomes really, uh, complicated and complex character studies that you're not really seeing very much of in, in any other uh, titles by any other writers. The only other place you can see that sort of thing really is in Crime Does Not Pay and Daredevil, the other books that are being written by Byro. So by the time we get to the end of the 20s, the book is really taken on a different shape. And one of the key things that happens during this time period is World War II comes to an end. The first issue that was published post-war was issue 26, and this went on sale on October 5, 1945. So it was just less than two months after the end of the war, and right away you can tell that it's, things are different because there's an atomic bomb depicted on the cover. It's not the main Im image. The main image is a guy being with uh, cement shoes being thrown off of a pier to his death. But on the side where they have the blurbs talking about the text verbs talking about the contents of the story is done in the shape of an atomic bomb. And so what's happening in comics at this time is the end of the war eventually becomes a major problem for a lot of publishers because the superhero comics were incredibly popular during the war. But after the war, a lot of them start to sort of lose focus. Like Captain America, for instance, is a character who works really well in the context of fighting the Nazis. But once you take the Nazis out of the picture, and you take the Japanese out of the picture, and Captain America doesn't really have anyone left to fight, there's not really that much to do. So Captain America kind of looks goofy when he's fighting regular criminals wearing his star-spangled pajamas. And a lot of superhero books started having this problem, where the readers were looking for something more realistic, and the, the audiences were looking for something different, because during the war, this had been a great place to get escapism. You know, they could do uh, a lot of uh, stories were basically wish fulfillment where they wish they had the power to just defeat you know the the axis power but since the people in the real world actually did defeat the axis powers they no longer needed this fantasy they wanted a different type of escapism and superhero comics just weren't really giving it to them so byro's sort of uh, shift from the superhero stuff which he which he started before the war ended was actually a, a really good uh, marketing decision and um is one of the reasons that the book was able to really thrive because after the end of the war the true crime genre that he had that Byro had um pioneered really became one of the most popular, if not the most popular, forms of entertainment. And so Boy Comics was just sort of naturally transitioning into the best place it could be in terms of continuing to, to thrive and sell. So into 1946 and 1947, you had this convergence where the audience's tastes were 
getting closer and closer in alignment to Byro's own personal taste in terms of what he wanted to be writing about, dovetailing with Byro becoming a better and better writer. Now, by modern standards, his writing is a little bit stiff, and particularly in terms of his, his dialogue. He's not a wordsmith. He, he doesn't use a lot of um, flowery language. It, it's not poetry. It, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's more like uh, what I would describe it as is a sort of uh, Chinese water torture where he uses a lot of dialogue. It's very straightforward. It's very plain. But word balloon by word balloon, drip by drip, you sort of get this wearing down effect, this aggregation of information about the characters. So by the time you get to page 10 or page 15, you somehow have developed, without even realizing it, a detailed picture in your mind of who exactly these characters are. I've seen people online, uh, comic book critics, that have described Byro's writing as sort of Stan Lee before Stan Lee, which is a little bit funny because Stan Lee, of course, was a contemporary of, of Byro and they were working at the same time. But it's true that Stan Lee had the same sort of thing in mind when he switched to his writing style that made Marvel Comics so famous in the early 60s. He was very much focused on character development and character realization. And it's something that uh, he actually studied Byro's writing. He was a big fan of Byro. As we'll see later, we'll discuss this a little bit towards the end of the episode, how that sort of came back around after Lev Gleason went out of business. Uh, but Stan Lee was on record as being an admirer of Byro's writing and studied his work to get an idea of how Byro was accomplishing his in-depth character work, which was very atypical for the comics that were being put out at this time. And this is really what I consider to be the best era of comics for Crime Buster, issues of boy comics, is a period that begins around issue between the 30, 32, 33. You can start it wherever you want and goes through about issue 44 or 45. During this time period, the last remaining backup features like Little Dynamite are phased out entirely and every issue is just Crime Buster. Two, sometimes three stories. The story is ranging in length from 15 up to a full 22, 23 pages. And the longer they get, the more detailed they get, the more in-depth the character work gets, the less and less Crime Buster himself actually participates in the stories. And a lot of times what you'll get here is basically a frame story where at the beginning Crime Buster will be saying, oh, I had this case, and he'll be telling the tale to someone else. And then you'll have 14 or 15 pages of this morality play where we see the whole life of a criminal or the life of a specific crime go from start to finish, and then right at the end, when it comes time for the crook to get their comeuppance, or for the victims to be saved, Crime Buster will show up right at the end of Act 3 to arrest the guy or provide a, a post-mortem on what we've just read. But there's very little in many of these stories in the way of actual action being taken by Crime Buster. He's almost more of a witness in a sort of um, classic narrator sense than he is a participant in many of these stories. It's almost like what we'll see later with EC where we have uh, narrators like the Crypt Keeper. This, this is not quite like that because Crime Buster does take action and is a part of these stories, but it's similar in a way. And the stories become darker and I don't want to say more violent because some of the early stories are incredibly violent. But one thing that happens here that really comes to the forefront is because of the sheer number of words that Byro is using, the huge amount of dialogue that his characters have, 
the artists don't really have a lot of room to work with. And so they develop a, a style for the book, sort of a, a house style for boy comics, where everything is done in a very straightforward manner that's that's not really embellished. It's not exaggerated. In this way, it's the opposite of Marvel, where you have Jack Kirby, you know, 15 years later, just jacking the action up to a thousand. This is exactly the opposite. Everything is minimalized and normalized. And it's very, very good art. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the artist Norman Maurer in a minute. But the art is, is very detailed. It's very precise. It's almost like the kind of art that you would expect to see in like a manual, diagrams. It's really good art, but there's no real attempt to portray action uh, as as active. Um, it's just straightforward, just like the dialogue, straightforward. Here's what it looks like. Here's what's happening. And it actually makes the violence more chilling because it's not uh, shown as something lurid or crazy. It's just a matter of fact, oh, here's a guy getting shot in the head. And it's drawn exactly the same as the guy eating a bagel in the last panel. And so when you have things like uh, there's a story in issue 37 where there's a, a guy who is basically pimping his daughter out and a gambler comes to town and makes a bet with the guy for the daughter and he wins the bet. And so the dad basically loses the bet and forces his daughter to marry this guy. And anyway, long story short, there's a whole bunch of like horrible abuse of this woman in this story. And it's all done just very matter of fact. Like after the, the gambler marries her, there's a whole page where he's just like beating the out of her and um but it's not drawn as though you're watching something terrible or something exciting either it's just like very matter of fact here's a guy beating up a woman and in that story it's you've come to find out that the horrible dad had been not just pimping her out but using her to lure people back to the house and then he and his son would murder the people and they had a pit in the backyard where they were throwing all the corpses. And eventually Crime Buster is on vacation out here and he meets her and he rescues her and breaks the case and they, these, these murderers get arrested. But that sort of thing happens a lot in these stories where you have these just completely shocking, horrible things that are presented as though just like a slice of life true crime. I don't want to say without judgment because there is judgment. The bad guys usually get it in the end. In fact, the bad guys almost always get it in the end. But it, it's just, it's not really almost, it's, in a way, it's not even done for entertainment. Like, it's not portrayed as though it's for entertainment. It's more like just sort of reading a news account in the newspaper. Now, even this sort of glory age for the series had to eventually come to an end. But before I get to how the book began transitioning into its next phase, I do want to talk a little bit, like I said, about the artist Norman Maurer. And Norman Maurer is a really interesting guy. He drew boy comics for many years and worked on other titles for uh, Lev Gleason. But he also worked for uh, other comic companies and other publishers. And most famously was one of uh, Joe Kubert's best friends and went into business with Joe Kubert and put out stuff like the um, infamous 3D issues that sold so much in the early 50s. Among a certain subset of fans though, he's almost more famous for what he did after he left comics than the comics work that he did because he happened to 
marry into the family of one of the Three Stooges, and later in life he became the manager of the Three Stooges and worked on movies with them, and so he's almost better known now among Three Stooges fans than among comic fans, which I think is a shame because I'm a really big fan of his work. It's very straightforward and by modern standards, you know, it's not a too exciting, it's not classic superhero work, you know, in the Jack Kirby style of adventure. But for the time period, it's really well done. It's it's very you can tell he had a lot of training and he could draw pretty much anything and you know make it look real. He he had a little bit of a cartoony edge to him when he wanted to, but for the most part he was content with just doing very detailed renderings of the situation. And frankly, most of what Byro's asking him to draw was just people talking. You know, Byro really, really I wouldn't say he enjoyed the sound of his own voice, but he enjoyed the sound of writing everyone else's voices. So there's lots and lots of people talking, lots of talking heads. And Maurer did a really good job of making all the characters distinct looking and keeping the action moving forward even though there wasn't any action actually happening. You could see though on the rare occasions where he was allowed to cut loose is mostly on splash pages or half splashes because one thing Byro really loved doing is at the beginning of every story he'd have this giant speech that he'd write and so there'd be a half splash or a full splash that of a symbolic image of what you're going to see in the story accompanied by this huge text box with a huge screed from Byro setting up whatever the moral of the story was supposed to be. And in those splashes, you can really see that Maurer knew what he was doing. He was very good and probably could have done a lot more if he had been asked to or allowed to. But with what he was asked to do and was allowed to do, he did a really good job. So what starts happening when you get into later 1947 into 1948, you start to see some things creeping into the book that in some ways are softening the title a little bit. Uh, after this sort of pinnacle in the late numbers 30s and early number 40s, where things are really graphic, get really long, long stories, very detailed. What you start to see is the stories start getting a little bit shorter, but you also start to see stories that are less about crime and more about other things that are theoretically of interest to boys. Specifically, you start seeing some sports stories sneak in. Uh, there's a story about basketball. There's issue 50 has a story about hockey on the cover. And there's uh, stories about boxers. So now the stories are all still crime stories, but they're dealing more with how crime is affecting, you know, the inner city youth that want to use the rec center to play basketball or whatever. And so you start to see a shift away from the harder crime and into what we're going to see happening in the late number 50s and into the 60s, which is more of a focus on stories that are kind of public service announcements. And these are stories that talk about issues of the day where it's like teenage driving. You know, so it'll be a story about how the kids are drag racing and someone gets killed or something about like, you know, the importance of farming or uh, like there's one story in the late 50s which is number you know 56 57 
in that area uh, where it's about the importance of physical fitness. And it's about this, you know, this guy who grows up a string bean, but then he, you know, eats healthier and gets a lot of exercise and turns into a big stubby man. And uh, so we start to see all these sort of public service announcements. And it makes sense for the time period because at this point we're getting into, you know, the post-war into 1949. And it's exactly what you would expect to see from an era that's giving you movies like Reefer Madness and and that sort of thing. So it's still the Truman era, but you, you're getting the sort of pre-Eisenhower, pre-50s feel to things. And Byro can sense what the direction of the nation is, and he can sense what's going on with his readership changing, and he can sense that what's going on with comic books. And we see in two key issues that came out with just in within a short period of each other exactly how the comic industry is changing and how he is reacting to it with issues 57 and then issue 60. Now I should mention that Boy Comics was originally published bi-monthly and that lasted up until issue 50 but after that it was on a monthly basis. So in 1949 uh, we're getting issues like 57 and 60 and what happens in issue 57 is after 20 issues with no backup stories and all Crime Buster tales, Crime Buster cedes the cover to a new character Dilly Duncan of Dorset High and Dilly Duncan becomes a regular backup feature in the pages of Boy Comics and it's basically Byro's attempt to do an Archie Comics style teen humor strip. Dilly is basically an Archie stand-in. He's sort of a clumsy every kid and he goes to Dorset High and he has humorous adventures and I say humorous you can imagine air quotes around that because one thing Byro was not good at was being funny and that's unfortunate because he thought he was funny and so this strip starting with issue 57 and Dilly Duncan is just the first inkling of where this comic is going to go in the future and where it's going to go in is into an increasingly unfunny bunch of stories where Byro is really trying to get an audience uh, that is just not there because if you want something funny there's lots of companies like Archie that are actually good at doing funny comics and time and again Byro kept trying to branch out into this field with no success at all. Now I'll give it to Byro, he was very astute at at, uh, as I mentioned, seeing what the trends were, but he was not very good at actually capitalizing on those trends. He was good at setting trends uh, with the crime genre to begin with. He was good at identifying them, but one of the big drawbacks to being the mainly, pretty much the only writer at the company is when he did identify uh, trends, he didn't have the personnel on hand to necessarily capitalize on his insights. And this is one case where Dilly Duncan is, you know, it's whatever. Uh, it's not the worst of his efforts to be funny. We're going to see that in a little bit, but you know, it's just not very good. But he did identify that the readership was changing. There was much less interest in superheroes. And so people were turning to different forms of entertainment. And one company that was really capitalizing on this was Archie. By the 1950, Archie had branched out and it expanded its line tremendously. Jughead had debuted, Betty and Veronica debuted, Reggie had debuted, and so the line was expanding with more and more hit series spinning out of Archie because the demand was just there. And Bio recognized this, he was trying to capitalize on it. Unfortunately, he just didn't succeed. But if number 57 was the first indication that Byro felt like he needed to adapt to the changing market, 
Number 60 was a much bigger sort of watershed moment. And it's one of my favorite comments of all time because of the lead story, which did two things. One of them is very problematical, which is it brought back Iron Jaw from the from the dead. And he had been killed back in issue 15, as I mentioned before, had stayed dead, and there had been no supervillains in the title really since then. In this issue, though, we find out that he's actually alive, he survived, he's no longer a Nazi, because that's yesterday's news, but now he's basically working for the communists. He doesn't care who he worked for as long as they're evil. And the reason it becomes problematical is he becomes a recurring foil for Crime Buster again. And so the stories that had a lot of depth previously, where we'd be getting into you know a character study of different crimes and criminals start the story starts to become more and more one note every time iron jaw shows up it's basically the same thing it's crime buster trying to get revenge for his parents and trying to stop iron jaw and so they become much more plot driven and frankly pretty boring to me now, it's not to say that all the issues during this time period are bad because Iron Jaw is not in every story yet, yet, but, uh, you know, there's definitely a downtick in interest be because it becomes less and less often that we get the more interesting stories in between the Iron Jaw appearances. But something else happens in this issue that's much more interesting and important, and that is Crime Buster gets a pair of pants. Now, this story came out in 1949, and 1949 is really a, a key year for the decline of superhero comics. In 1949, a lot of long-running superhero books were canceled, replaced by other titles, and transitioned, you know, from superhero books into westerns or crime comics and things. Things were happening like Green Lantern being replaced by his dog sidekick as the main character. And that was happening across the board. Pretty much all the publishers. There were exceptions, of course, like uh, Superman and Batman and Captain Marvel. But most of the second tier superhero books uh, were canceled because, you know, people just weren't buying it anymore. They weren't literally weren't buying the comics, but they also just weren't buying into the conceit of the superhero any longer. So what happens in this issue is, again, Crime Buster this whole time has been running around in his superhero quote-unquote costume, which is a hockey uniform and a cape, which is actually great cloak from his military academy. And in this story, uh, there's basically one recurring supporting character throughout the series, which is the district attorney, uh, Louver. So in this story, um, Louver's, I think it's his niece, comes to town, and he asks Crime Buster to show her the city. And when Crime Buster goes to take her out on a date to show her the city, she refuses to go out with him because he looks like such a complete fool wearing this costume all the time. And so what Louver does is he buys Crime Buster a pair of pants, and he goes to him and he says, you know... None of us want to say anything because we're your friends, but we've all been kind of concerned for a while because you look like such an idiot running around in this hockey uniform all the time with a cape on. So we bought you, we, we all talked about it, and we bought you a pair of pants. And at first, Crime Buster refuses to wear the pants, but eventually he comes around and he wears the pants. And from that time on, starting with this issue, his costume changes, so he basically, he's still wearing the top of the uniform, it's just the jersey top, you know, um, the hockey sweater, but other than that, he's just wearing pants and loafers, and he ditches the cape, and he wears like a, an Oxford shirt underneath his hockey sweater, and so he basically just looks like, you know, Archie, uh, except instead of having an R for Riverdale on his chest, he has a C, and 
That story always struck me as a very meta-commentary on the decline of the superhero comics, where the characters in the story are literally commenting on how stupid superhero costumes look and how stupid the genre is and how we need they need to adapt and grow up. And so that's what they do in the story is Byro has the series grow up. He has the character grow up, put away the goofy superhero elements and, you know, become a more mature title. Now it's ironic that he does this in the same story where he brings back a supervillain and in a lot of ways this, the series actually becomes less mature. But uh, it's still one of my favorites uh, as a great commentary on the decline of superhero comics in the late 40s, even as it sort of leads to the decline of boy comics. Now, it's a, it's a relatively slow decline. It takes a year or two. But by the time we get up to around issue 75 or so, there's, there's a couple issues there, 75, 76, 77, where it's all Iron Jaw. Every story is Crime Buster just chasing Iron Jaw. They become very repetitive, very boring, and it's capped off by this epic three-issue storyline. Now, this is really unusual for the time period, and it's the first time that Boy Comics has done this, but there's an ongoing story that runs through issues 80, 81, and 82, where there's this new supervillain named The Vacuum, and I use the word supervillain very loosely because basically all he has is literally a vacuum cleaner and he uses it to suck up money out of like locked bank vaults and he can also use it like a, a jet propulsion engine to go across the water really fast and do other idiotic vacuum themed things in this storyline iron jaws in it and there's a group of totally ridiculous crooks called the deadly dozen or the dirty deeds or some dumbass thing they're led by a guy named sniffer and sniffer was a character and i think the other guys in the the deadly dozen might have also been in issues of daredevil comics before this so he makes the jump from daredevil comics over here to boy comics and there's this epic storyline where iron jaw and sniffer and the this whole gang of other crooks and the vacuum are all sort of fighting each other trying to get this proprietary vacuum-based thieving technology and Crime Buster is simultaneously fighting all of them. And Byro apparently really dug this and thought it was great because what happens is at the end of that storyline, he's developed this rivalry between Iron Jaw and Sniffer that then becomes the focus of the title. And starting around issue 82, it's Iron Jaw and Sniffer that become the lead in the title. And Crime Buster is relegated to a backup in what was his own series. Crime Buster isn't the only backup in the series at this point, though. Now, Dilly Duncan, which, as I mentioned, had started in issue 57, ended with issue 71 and made this jump over to Daredevil Comics and became the backup in that series. But in issue 80... At the same time that Sniffer and Iron Jaw sort of take over the main title, Byro also introduced a new backup series called Rocky X. And Rocky X is a classic sci-fi story about this astronaut named Rocky X who has a rocket and he's got a sidekick named Stimpy and they fly all around the galaxy fighting Buck Rogers reject villains. The only thing that's really notable about the Rocky X strip at this point is it has an ongoing storyline. Not every issue, but sometimes they'll have stories that run for three, four, five issues at a time because he's only doing these six-page stories and that's not really enough to do epic sci-fi tales. But one of the 
issues has a storyline that begins and runs through the book for quite a while where they bring back the classic daredevil villain the claw and the claw had appeared in the first issue of daredevil comics and he's basically this gigantic yellow peril stereotype who's got giant fangs and giant fingernails and big pointy ears and is like a hundred feet tall for some reason and anyway rocky x defeats him so we're getting into you know you know issue 84 85 86 and a lot of these crime buster only has a few pages byro has really marginalized them uh you have the sense that uh with the changing of the marketplace he doesn't feel like there's really any place for superhero or, or even boy crime stuff anymore and so he, he's really shelved the character for the most part and what we do see of him because he has so little room to develop there's none of the depth of the early stories instead we have more sort of boys adventure stuff there's more stuff for them like finding treasure maps or bullfighting and that sort of thing and this goes on for a while but it doesn't last in large part because as i mentioned byro's just not good at doing these humor strips and if you read these iron job versus sniffer stories which are all played for humor they're so painfully terrible that i have to guess that's sales must have started sliding because for whatever reason whether that or something else or just because byro really liked the character starting with issue 97 i believe crime busters back to the main feature he takes the covers back over and remains the cover feature for the rest of the series becomes the lead feature again and iron john sniffer are relegated to a short backup story and for the rest of the run that's basically what you have until the series is canceled you have crime buster in the lead story with back Backups of Rocky X in one of them and Iron Jaw versus Sniffer in the other one. Now, at this point, the comics market has really started to change. By the time we get to Boy Comics number 100, it's 1954, and comics are coming under fire from all sides. And by all sides, I mean basically, you know, the white middle class elite who are basically using it as a scapegoat for all of the nation's ills, you know. Comics are being blamed for teen delinquency is the big thing. They're supposed to be this cause and effect where kids reading comics become criminals and all this stuff. And there's congressional hearings and there's boycotts and people are burning the comics. And this is a especially big problem for Lev Gleason because, you know, Daredevil with featuring little wise guys is still selling very well. Boy Comics is still doing well, but really where they're making all of their money is on Crime Does Not Pay and its sister book Crime and Punishment, which are still the industry leaders for crime comics. And crime comics, along with horror comics, are the number one target. And Byro is clearly worried about this because in this period from like 1952, 53, 54, he's constantly trying new comics out. He's putting out all sorts of new titles and none of them are succeeding. He has things like Black Diamond Western, which as you can guess by the title is a Western and he has Desperados, which is another Western title. Those don't work. It put out some horror titles, although it's really kind of half-assed with that. And uh, there's even a little bit of romance that doesn't really work uh, but mostly you know they're trying westerns having a little bit of success but not much and they're putting out a lot of books for kids charles byro was well known for just enjoying being around kids now in modern terms that sounds creepy although it's there's nothing creepy about it but one of the reasons he loved writing boy comics so much and he loved writing the little wise guys is he just really liked kids he liked talking with kids and he kept trying to monetize this by shifting the publication of Lev Gleason away from crime stuff and sort of diversifying into kids comics and he just could not get it to 
to work in part, in large part, as I mentioned, because he just wasn't any good at it. But he put out stuff like Uncle Charlie's Fables, which was, you know, old fables that were retold for a modern audience and other titles like that. And they'd all last like one issue, two issue, four issues, and they'd be canceled. One of the books he put out during this time period was Squeaks, which is a really bizarre title. Came out in 1953 and it's Crime Busters sidekick squeaks the monkey in his own tom and jerry style universe where he has these adventures in this world that's populated by all sorts of different talking animals and there's all these gags with like dynamite and and stuff it's very tom and jerry and in these books squeaks is always he's got an arch rival who's a tiger and they're always trying to basically injure or maim each other for hilarious hijinks there's a, a real uh, disconnect between what Squeaks is doing in the pages of Boy Comics and what his personality is in the pages of Boy Comics and what's going on with him in Squeaks where he can talk and is basically a complete jerk as opposed to being just a smart monkey that can't talk and is a really sympathetic, cool character that everyone loves in boy comics. I think Byro expected that fans would go over from boy comics to read Squeaks, but he stuck so much to the Tom and Jerry formula and style of humor and action that it just didn't work for an established character like Squeaks, plus it was just, just not good. So that is another failed attempt. So in addition to tweaking what's happening in boy comics to react, to the marketplace he's trying to protect the company uh, from the looming disaster caused by the congressional hearings by diversifying the portfolio of the company and it's just not working luckily he does still have these flagship titles like boy comics coming out so he continues to tweak those and one of those tweaks happens in issue 100 where in the backup story series rocky x we get one of the most inexplicable tone changes of all time where for the last 25 issues since they debuted, Rocky X and his planeteers, or whatever they're called, are flying around the galaxy fighting all these space monsters and stuff like that. In issue 100, after just finishing a long storyline in number 99 where he was saving Earth from an alien invasion, he reports back to the government about, you know, to sort of be debriefed from saving the world from aliens, and they're like, you did such a good job flying around the galaxy all this time that we are going to reassign you to Korea to fight communists. Now, this is 1954, so, you know, the Korean War is already over, but it seems a little bit weird that, that this would happen considering the incredible technology required for Rocky X to fly around the galaxy. You would think it would be really easy for them to just, you know, beat the communists or eavesdrop on them without having to you know, sneak into China on a motorcycle or something. But no, rather than come up with new characters for kind of this sort of uh, contemporary spy action that they want to do in Rocky X, Byro just has this bizarre transition from space adventure to commie fighting behind enemy lines. Now, it's a drastic change, but it's not the most drastic change that would take place in the series because that happens in Boy Comics number 107, which is a watershed issue uh, for Crime Buster and for the title, even more drastic than ditching the superhero elements in number 60. So, by issue 107, Byro could see the writing on the wall in the form of the Commerce Code Authority. It hadn't started yet, but it was clear that some drastic action was going to be taken by the Commerce 
electronics industry to sort of try and protect themselves from government regulation. The government had to step in. There's just no telling what the comics industry would be forced to do. So there was a move afoot to create their own sort of regulating body that would make sure the comics were in line with popular sentiment, etc. It's interesting that Lev Gleason and Charles Biro had actually pioneered a early version of the Comics Code Authority all the way back in the late 40s. This was something where it was almost totally ignored by everybody, both in the industry and just society at large, because it was rightfully recognized as basically a self-serving exercise, again, to just protect themselves. They got this board of experts together that would basically review the comics and be like, yeah, these are fine. There's just nothing harmful in these, even though these titles had a history of all sorts of ridiculous ultraviolence that should really never have been marketed to children. But, you know, they knew there was a problem and they tried to head it off with very little success. So by issue 107, Byro knew that they weren't going to be able to avoid uh, the oncoming storm. And so he proactively took steps to protect the title, Boy Comics, from the Comics Code Authority, but also, again, shift the tone uh, and the content of the book to appeal to this shifting audience. So what he did in issue 107, again, in a sort of classic crime buster fashion and again the book is grounded in the realism of what would happen if a character like this actually existed in the real world and so what's been happening for all the years of the title coming out is that crime buster has been working uh with a district attorney louver on these cases and in issue 107 louver calls him into the office and says you know the people upstairs like you know the governor finally realized that i have a teenager unofficially working on police cases and getting shot on a couple issues in the line of duty and with no authority it's a complete mess because you know just think of the legal ramifications of of having a kid find evidence and uh, arrest someone you know that's never going to stand up in the court of law you know who's reading the Miranda rights squeaks no so because of this Louvers had the law laid down to him basically said nope this is just a huge liability and so he tells crime buster Okay, if you want to continue fighting crime, the only way to do it is you have to go to school, you have to, you know, get your degree and then go to police academy and become an actual police officer. And then once you're an actual police officer, then you can come back and fight crime. Hey, that makes complete damn sense, doesn't it? So... The result is that Crime Buster is packed off to school and he goes to a new school called Curtis Tech. Of course, I had to start with a C, so it still makes sense for him to be wearing his hockey jersey with a C on the chest. And for the remainder of the series, the book takes a turn where it becomes sort of a classic 1950s style boys adventure slash Hardy Boys mystery sort of thing. So he's still investigating mysteries, but it's a lot of like campus mysteries, intrigue, of, you know, there's some crazy old man in the woods and, uh, you know, maybe he found gold or stuff like that. And again, a lot of still sports-related stuff. There's stories about football and hockey and baseball and fencing even for some reason. And Crime Buster gets a whole new Archie-style supporting cast of characters, including a rival named Jabbo and a best friend named Stu. And the change came just in time because... The Comics Code Authority does in fact come into place with issue 109. And as part of the Comics Code Authority, you could no longer have crime in the title of your book. 
And that meant for Boy Comics that they couldn't actually use the name Crime Buster in the book or on the cover. So at that point, he just started being called CB or being called by his real name, which is Chuck Chandler. And the last issue of the series, which came out with a cover date in 1956, showed that Byro was, you know, really working to try and to keep things going because it is the first issue that has a logo other than just the classic boy comics logo instead uh, it has a chuck chandler logo and it features a hockey cover and it's it's really a very very different thing than the what boy comics had originally started out as unfortunately by that point it was too late and the company went under now as I mentioned before, Byro had been trying for a while to protect the company from just this sort of calamity, but he was unable to do so for a couple reasons. Part of it was just that his books weren't catching on, you know, his other works in other genres just weren't popular. But part of it may have been because the company was being blackballed. As the publishers of Crime Does Not Pay, they were the number one target of the Comics Code Authority. It's important to remember, again, the Comics Code Authority was not a government agency. It was actually a watchdog group group created by the comics uh, publishers themselves to sort of proactively protect themselves. But there was, according to some accounts, there was a secondary motive by the companies that were publishing material that was not affected by the code. And that was basically to make the code so restrictive that it would force their competitors out of business. DC Comics was the primary mover behind this, and it is perfectly uh, understandable considering what a bunch of cutthroat jerks the people at DC Comics were at that time. They had already forced uh, Fawcett to divest themselves of their comic book company and cancel all of their popular Captain Marvel books after years and years of completely ridiculous lawsuits claiming that Captain Marvel was somehow a ripoff of Superman. And it's not to say that Captain Marvel wasn't a ripoff of Superman, but so were 900 other characters that DC didn't bother suing. The only ones that DC cared about was Fawcett because Captain Marvel was actually popular. And it's the same thing here. DC at this point is putting out, they are putting out their own crime books, but they're much tamer uh, books that are based on popular like radio dramas, like Mr. District Attorney, for instance, is one of the titles they put out. So it's like really benign stuff. And most of their books are just not affected by the Comics Code Authority. And so they really wanted to put the screws to Lev Gleason because Lev Gleason had a really huge market share thanks to the popularity of their crime books, but DC knew they were vulnerable because they didn't have any other types of books. So they teamed up with the other companies that weren't being affected uh, by the comics code in order to sort of force out their competitors. And so, you know, companies like Archie and Dell uh, were companies that survived the comic code because it didn't affect their work. But a company like Lev Gleason, where all of their money was coming from, from crime comics were just completely nailed and so DC basically got their wish within a matter of three years they forced their two biggest competitors Fawcett uh, and Lev Gleason out of business and that left them with sort of an open market because nobody else was doing the kind of books they were doing except for Atlas and um, you know by 1957 they had Atlas under the thumb too but that's something for a completely different podcast. 
So again, number 119 was the last issue of Boy Comics, but it's not quite the end of the story for Crime Buster. After Lev Gleason went out of business, Byro tried for a while to sort of personally regain the rights to the characters. I don't know if he was planning on eventually publishing himself or, or what, but he failed for whatever reason. I don't know why. Like There wasn't any other interest in them at the time that, that I know of, so I'm not sure why he wasn't able to get them. But the point is that they eventually um, lapsed into the public domain. And as I mentioned, Stan Lee was a big fan of Byro's work, and he was a particularly big fan of the character Daredevil, who was not created by Byro, but was written by Byro for most of the character's publication life. And so in 1964, once Daredevil had gone into public domain, of course, Marvel created their own version of Daredevil. And nowadays, if you think of Daredevil, especially with the Netflix TV show, everybody thinks of Marvel's version of Daredevil. But that was the second version of the character, and they were really only able to do it because the first version went into the public domain. So, in a weird way, Stan Lee has DC Comics to thank for driving Lev Gleason out of business. Crime Buster has made a couple other appearances since then, but not until the 90s. In the late 90s, a couple things happened. One is that there's a publishing company called AC Comics, and what they do is they put out comics based on public domain characters. Their most famous title is called Fem Force, and Fem Force is, as you might guess, it's a comic book where it's a team of superheroes that are all female characters that were like golden age public domain characters. And it's half superhero and half cheesecake. Almost every issue just has, you know, covers of a lot of TNA in a superhero context. Hmm, not my thing. But at one point, again, as I mentioned, a lot of people are sort of cult fans of Iron Jaw. And at one point, the writers of Fem Force in the late 90s decided to bring Iron Jaw back. And when they brought him back, it was part of a storyline where he was basically like horning in on the drug business in Miami or something. And as usual, Crime Buster was hot on, hot on his tail. So basically, because they wanted to use Iron Jaw, they also brought Crime Buster back. And this story was threaded into issues of Fem Force for a fair amount of time, several issues. And eventually, they collected all of the subplot and main plot stuff with Crime Buster and Iron Jaw and published it as a one-shot Crime Buster number zero. This came out in the late 90s and other than a few like minor cameos in comics by fans of Golden Age books, um, just sort of like wink and nod background character appearances, this is pretty much the only and last appearance by Crime Buster in a comic book since this series ended in the late 50s. Uh, it's also of note because it's the only time where Crime Buster actually had a comic published under his own name. He was the lead star and for most of the time the cover star of Boy Comics for 14 years and 117 issues, but it was always Boy Comics starring Crime Buster. So Crime Buster number zero, there's nothing particularly of merit uh, or of note about it other than it was the only time that he got his own title. Now a couple other footnotes. In the, in the 90s, Crime Buster also had a moment of fame, although most people don't even know that they know who Crime Buster is. In 1993, the artist Mel Ramos did a painting called Crime Buster, which was a portrait of Crime Buster. And Mel Ramos is a painter who is known for pinup art and for paintings of superheroes. 
And so, you know, other than Mel Ramos fans, nobody probably would have seen this painting, except it, for some reason, it came to the attention of um, the band Rage Against the Machine, and they used the painting of Crime Buster as the cover for their album Evil Empire. Now, they uh, changed it up just a little bit. Basically, they took the C on his chest and they replaced it by an E. But other than that, the album Evil, Evil Empire, it's Crime Buster on the front, came out in 1996. And so, there's a whole general generation of music fans that are very familiar with the image of Crime Buster, they just don't know who it is. That seems kind of fitting in a weird way for Crime Buster, considering at one time he was one of the most popular characters in comics, had his own series, again, that lasted for over a decade, one of the few superhero characters that lasted through the end of superhero comics and all the way through to the beginning of the Silver Age, and yet today nobody knows who he is. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, I think he's a great character, but you know, until someone puts out a new Crime Buster book, it's unlikely that he'll get many new fans. Now, it is possible that anybody can put out a new Crime Buster book if they wanted because he is in the public domain. I've actually thought about doing my own and I worked on what was going to be a story for issue 120 but I didn't like it very much so I scrapped it for now but eventually I'll get around to it. Anyone else could publish their own version if they want and an entire run of boy comics, all 117 issues are available for free to read online. So I would recommend if you have any interest after listening to this and reading anything of his stories to check it out. I mean they're free issues that I would recommend. If you want to see some really dark, violent, like disturbingly horrifying early early work. Issue 7 has a, a really uh, eye-popping story that involves Crime Buster in a haunted house and people just being gruesomely murdered. Like one guy is doused in gasoline and shoved into a furnace while still alive and uh, all sorts of just horrible things uh, which are made much more horrible when you remember that this is a title that is explicitly being marketed to young children. Uh, another really good one uh, is number 19, one of my favorite comics of all time and it has a crazy ass story where this guy murders a uh, paraplegic. He's been basically taking care of this guy that was a um, double amputee and he pushes him in front of a train and kills him because he knows that the guy has written him into his will. But when he goes to collect the money, he discovers that there's a stipulation in the will that says he only gets the money if he cuts his own legs off first. And long story short, you know what, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but let's just say the guy cuts his own legs off and things go way downhill from there. That's not even the worst part. That's just where the worst part starts is where he cuts his own legs off to get the money. So that's a really good one. I've already mentioned number 37, which is the story where uh, the woman is sold to the gambler and it turns out that there's a bunch of pe murdered people in a pit in the backyard. 60 with the pants is a really good one you can start with. So those would be some of my recommendations. Pretty much any of the issues between 34 and 44 are worth reading in their entirety. A couple other notes I want to mention that didn't really fit in anywhere else uh, in the podcast here. As I mentioned, Charles Byrow, not a great artist uh, and he did not draw the uh, Crime Buster strip. Of course, there was Norman Maurer, plus there were other artists that worked on the book over the years as well. One of those artists that worked on the book was Norman Maurer's close friend, Joe Kubert, who came onto the title right at the end. So when it was a boy's adventure title around issue 114, 115, 116, it was Joe Kubert who was doing the art, which is fantastic. It has a very distinctive style. You can still tell it's Crime Buster, but you can also tell that it's him. There's just no way to get around it. And, and 116 is possibly the only cover in the entire 
entire run where Byro did not draw the cover himself. Now he wasn't drawing the interiors, but he still insisted on drawing the covers, and while his early covers at the beginning of the series, some of them are really good, his later covers are get pretty bland. He gets really into the heavy text, even on the cover. So 116 with Kubert art is a real change of pace, and it's, it's a real interesting oddity. And uh, it's just cool to see his style on it. And the other thing I want to mention, um, Crime Buster was not just popular here in America, he was also wildly popular in South America. Now, there's publishing companies in South America who would reprint the Crime Buster stories, and eventually what would happen is they would run out of stories because they were publishing them faster than they were being printed in America. So they began making up their own stories. And this was particularly interesting because after the series ended in 1956, they continued publishing new Crime Buster stories in South America all the way into the 1960s. Now, at that point, with Lev Gleason out of business, you know, there's, I don't know if they ever even had an actual licensing deal to reprint them, but by that point, they definitely didn't, and I'm sure that Lev Gleason and Charles Byron never saw a dime of any of the proceeds. But sure enough, they published hundreds of issues down there. I'm not sure exactly how many because uh, it's just hard to get information on that stuff. But down there, the character was called Husty. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's J-U-S-T-Y, and he had a J on his chest instead of a C. And um, I don't speak or read Spanish, unfortunately. I do have a couple issues, and since I've read all the American issues, I can tell that there's certain stories in the ones I have that were originally, there are original stories done for the South American audiences. Um, not just because I haven't seen them before, but also there's a different art style. It's clearly something that was drawn not by one of Lev Gleason's artists, but rather by the South American artists. So that's something, it's like really difficult place to get into collecting because they're so hard to find those issues. And when you do find them, they're expensive because they have to be shipped up from Argentina. But it's something I would definitely like to do is put together at some point a collection of the Spanish language original stories and see if I could somehow get them translated because I'd be really curious to read what kind of shenanigans Crime Buster was getting up to in South America in all those years after his title was canceled here in the United States. So I hope you've enjoyed this look at Boy Comics, Crime Buster, and one of the great forgotten series of the 1940s. As always, join us at ClassicComics.org online to join in the conversation. And join us next time for another episode of the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. Podcast.